welcome everyone to episode 4 of Dip Dish Discussion, not a cooking podcast, but a slow spin side track special, where I, Paul, your casual fixed nerd, discuss with David, your actual semi-pro track racer from Down Under. Hi, David. How we going, guys? Doing great. Doing early and great. And Matt is with us today. Hi, Matt. Hey, how are you? I am doing great. And before we start, I want to say that yesterday I was at the birthday party of my local bike shop owner. And his name is Matt as well. I mean, it's, it is a good name. So you, sh- you should celebrate him well. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a great party. <laughs> <laughs> um, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you. Um, for people that don't know you or don't know what you do, do you want to quickly introduce yourself and what you do? Sure. Uh, I always hate introductions, so this is this is great. But um, my name is Matt, obviously. Um, I live in Brisbane, Australia, so East Coast. Um, I run a shop here called Gear Shop Brisbane. Um, so we specialize in fixed gear and tracks. So um, you'll probably figure out from the theme of today that uh, a lot of what we do is focused on the track side. Um, but the whole premise of where we got to track uh, was, I guess, from the fixed community. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a writer from quite a while back now uh, and do a lot more track these days than, you know, fixed, but still, my, you know, my, my fixie is still the bike I still love the most. It's the one I get on when I'm always, uh, you know, needing a, a ride to clear the head or something. After all the gear you have at your fingertips, a fixed gear is still what you use to have a good time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how to describe it, but I feel like other people who ride fixed will, will get it. There's just something so simple about the connectivity to the bike, you know, and people f- sometimes lose that touch and they go, oh, it's a bit hard up this hill. You know, I'll take the road bike. But then when you get on it, it's just that raw simple experience you don't have to think about anything other than just pedaling it's just beautiful and i really like the your definition of it i'm i'm into it <laughs> <laughs> i'm really into it uh i'll put the link in the show notes obviously but uh, the instagram is gear shop brisbane um and you guys might want to see a little bit about all that but before I heard that you are just back from Jakarta. Uh, where's a little souvenir? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds lovely, doesn't he? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I uh, decided that I would bring COVID home from Jakarta, which was a um, it's a really nice gift. You know, it's been real long lasting, something that I feel like I could, you know, really bring home with me. And so now it's in recording. So you'll be with you forever on the internet somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um. All right. Yeah. We. Are, I'm excited, David. If you have questions, but I want to know more about Jakarta. What would you like to know? Little little things that you know made made the made the difference. All right. So I'll pro- it's probably better to start with some context to why I was in Jakarta. Um, yeah, that's right. So I, through Instagram a few years ago, um, have connected with a couple of different mechanics around the globe. Um, one of those is Tim DeBoer, 
And if you follow the Toolbox Wars Instagram, you'll know Tim uh, as a mechanic. Um, he's just got the nicest looking toolbox around. Um, when I was recently in the Netherlands, I shouldn't say recently, it was nine months ago now, uh, went and visited the Dutch Federation out at Appledorn. I uh, wanted to catch up with Tim and from there, jokingly said, you know, if you ever um, need a second mechanic, let me know, especially if it's closer to Australia and it saves you money. Uh, then it turns out they did and it would save them money. So I got the call up to come and give the Dutch Federation or the KNWU a, a helping hand. Man, that, yeah, that that's quite the yeah. opportunity. Yeah, that Tim fella, he's such a nice dude too. I messaged him on Instagram months ago about tire choices and he's the one who recommended the, the Dugas to me. So I got the um, mm-hmm. diamond cotton, not the red super fast ones. they have been a fucking cracking tire too. They've been going all right. They are definitely a very nice tire, the one you've got. I like them a lot. Yeah, I, I rode them on every track in Tassie, um, Bundaberg. Yeah, they're just, they're fucking, they're weapons. They're so great. Nice and grippy, still super supple, but they don't break the bank either. Yeah, exactly. That's why I got them. Plus, you know, there's some, they made, where are they made again? Belgium? No. Netherlands. Uh, d- made, I think the guys they made is, in the uh, Netherlands? Dutch. Yeah. All right. I just like to know it's made by some old Dutch man in a factory somewhere. So it gives me hope. Yeah. I just discovered the, uh, what you just said, the Instagram account Toolbox Wars. It's the best thing. <laughs> I love it. It's a really, really bad way if you're trying to save money because what happens is you get on there and you'll start pining over things you don't need or don't have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is this is what I love about the, the track cycling scene. It's very similar to the fixed community in that like-minded people will connect and then form these friendships through a mutual interest or, you know, in the, in this case is tools. You know, I'm a tool nerd. I, I want, uh, you know, I always want something different or something that's useful, always thinking of different ways to, to do a job. And yeah, you can lose a lot of hours on there. That's for sure. Oh, 100%. I've recently started organizing all my audio gears and camera gears into Pelican cases. And I'm like, wait, they do tools as well? And I've thought about it for a second. I was like, nah, nah, nah. This is going to be complicated. I don't need another case. Already have four at home. That might be a little bit too much. But you know what? No, I'm good. Um, I'm going to get another one. I'm going to put my tools in there. But it, it, you buy a Pelican case or, or you know, uh, a similar uh, plastic case. And they last you a lifetime. Like I've got an original Pelican fifteen sixty for all my camera equipment, and that I've had for what about thirteen years now. And it it it's a it's an investment. It's not actually just like a an aimless purchase. It's actually somewhere to put the things that you value in a safe yeah. space. So yeah, I'm going to oh, encourage you. More, more cases for your tools. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> more cases. Yeah, Paul, get all the cases, yeah. mate. Yeah, all cases, all yeah, of them. All. I want, <laughs> oh my god! I'll put some links into the into the show notes. But some of these cases are gigantic. You know, it's like two layers on tool of tools, like one on top, one on the bottom. But you have literally everything you could ever need 
That's wild. That's crazy. Yeah, and and if the one of the good parts of going to Jakarta and, and seeing another like World Cup or in this instance Nations Cup, it's looking at everyone's toolboxes with a different sort of uh, insight. Like last time I did a a, a trip was right before COVID, so mm-hmm. um, it was actually based here in Brisbane. So I got the call up and. I didn't really have a proper toolbox at that point. I still had a hard case, but just it wasn't laid out right. So I didn't really pay attention to anyone else's kit or what they were doing. And I was sort of just in my own space. But this time, you know, I've got my toolkit out. It's, you know, I've laid it out kind of the way I need for for the event. Um, And, you know, you start to see all the other different toolboxes of different uh, nationalities. Like the Japanese have these beautiful, like, alloy cases. Um, The Americans have uh, big pelican cases. Uh, and then if you go to the Australians, you'll see that they've got one big pelican case and then a tool roll. And I think that it, it's it's good because everyone has a different way of achieving the same result, something that works for mm. them. But it is actually quite yeah. inspiring. Yeah, and no, I remember racing Oceanas last year, going past the Australian um, area and just seeing their case full of chain rings just fucking going on forever. That might be something I need to get my hands on at a moment's notice when no one's looking because I'm like, fuck, that is a lot of flash equipment in one area. <laughs> Probably yeah. spent thousands of bucks just to protect the stuff. But um, I I'm, must say I am an outlier. I do not have a fancy toolbox for our tools. My dad has a corner in the shed where the tools live, not necessarily organized. The most organized thing in my collection is my track gear bag, but that is all I need. So <laughs> I don't need a case yet. It's about yeah. what you need, the simplicity of, yeah. of everything. Yeah, like yeah, if someone says, oh, you bag. need a tool case, you probably don't. No, you don't. And if like, if you have like a, yeah, a tool roll for your track, your track equipment, it's not like you're going to need to change your bottom bracket in the middle of the race. I mean, hopefully not, but you don't <laughs> need that extra equipment. You know, you can just That's have That's when you like, just go see Matt. You just go see yeah, Matt at the yeah, gear shop. Exactly. He'll sort that out for you. <laughs> we need a tubular glue to a moment's notice. Meet him up in the car park. <laughs> or outside my house at like 11 p.m. like your dad did one yeah. night. Yeah. <laughs> just for tires. Just for tires. Nothing else. Just for tires. Then <laughs> Matt's come to save us a number of times. <laughs> Matt saved us at a number of moments notices for... um various equipment and materials needed for track racing because you come all the way from cans you don't really there's no shops up here which supply anything track related so it's probably good to give context of how far cans is from brisbane yeah so um it's a two-hour flight and it's within the same state but it's a two two thousand kilometers from cans to brisbane Oh my god! Yeah, so it's still this. So it's over eight days drive. So if you drive consistently for a day, no stops, it will take you a whole day to get there. And that's still that's still the same state. Assuming you don't hit roadworks or you don't go the wrong way, like we did on our way to Bundaberg. Oh my god! Yeah, so that's I think people underestimate how big. Australia is sometimes it's Australia is massive. Huge. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah so you can drive for a uh, day. Like, I think if we're using context, it'd probably be akin to going from like say Paris to sort of Stockholm. I guess would that be about? Yeah, that w- that would probably be about that, or that would be just going from north north 
oh my god, north to south of France twice. Yeah, that's that's probably a much easier thing. So, yeah, it, it's you know in, in Imperial it's uh it's about twelve hundred miles. Oh my so, yeah, god. It's it's kind of funny, like the size of Australia and, and people sometimes don't understand the concept. It's like for David and his family to travel for track racing, it is a major exercise. Yeah. And they do it regularly. And I mean it's something that I think should be talked about more in Australia the track cycling scene is small and we've got a lot of regional riders who constantly travel to these events and support the racing. You know, the the Huttons are a great example of that and there's a few other families uh, in the mix that do the same. But without that, the sport wouldn't be what it is. So it's like, as a, as a, you know, a business owner, sure, it's great to support that. But I think on a level, like I've made friends with quite a few of you and I, I, I love being able to support that. And, you know, it'd be a pretty bad thing if, you know, you guys needed something and I was like, nah, it's, it's five o'clock. I'm going home. You know, like that just, yeah. that wouldn't fly with me. Nah. Yeah, no, Matt. Matt's a very good bloke. If you haven't picked up on that already, listeners, oh, I don't very know nice fella. He goes all right. <laughs> He's all right. Yeah, but I think Australia's whole track scene is built up on regional carnivals. Essentially, like, yes, it's great. We only got an indoor velodrome in Queensland within the last what six years? Six years. Uh, 2017 yeah spot on 2017 yeah so queensland this massive state did not have an indoor velodrome until within the last six years so if we wanted to go to an indoor velodrome we would have to go to sydney sydney yep sydney which is fuck how far is that from cairns that's a thousand kilometers from brisbane so let's call that (laughs) what three thousand from you three thousand kilometers to get to the nearest indoor velodrome Oh my days! Oh, here we go. Two thousand five hundred. There we go. David, yeah. you did invest into a, a hard case for your bike, right? Oh yeah, yeah. We've got um, we've got a heap of cases for our equipment and stuff. We've got hella wheel bags. I'm looking at once when I get a pay rise and can save some money, I want to get one of those proper, and they're called the Allen's hard cases. Hmm. I think they're like a thousand bucks, twelve hundred bucks just for the case. But wow. I mean, if you've got a bike worth five to six grand in there with equipment, like you need to protect that shit because there's nothing. See, worse I than sit on another side, and I, I'd be the first person to say I wouldn't get a hard case. I've got a soft bag at the oh. moment, but I want a hard case. So Wait, I want to, I want to hear more about that. That's that's quite yes. interesting. So I think if we're talking about like injection molded hard cases, they've always got their limitations for pack down and the amount of, uh, you know, effort that's required to get the bike in. I'm a big fan. Um, there's a company in Australia called Envirobox and they oh, make yes, a, yes, a bike box out of core fluke. Yeah. No, Envirobox is great. Uh, so core flute, I don't know if you guys use the material in, in France, but our real estate companies use it when they put a property on the market. It's like the for sale sign and it's oh, like, a Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I totally, oh my God. Yes. I, I see it now. Yeah. Mm. So it's a double insulated core flute, uh, box and it's got four Velcro straps. And the good thing is if you put some sponge or foam down in the bottom of them, you can literally just take your front wheel out 
throw it in the box, put the wheel in, put a blanket over it, just close the box and walk away. You're done. Yeah. Yeah. They just no. look so the yeah they look cheap, but it's actually a really good solution. Well, no, I know I that, got a story uh, from Tazzy packing one of those at two in the morning on the piss. That was fucking. That was good fun. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's, they can store so much you remember um matt you remember jade from bundy yeah 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 from like last night of tassie we for new year's eve gotten on it heavy bus back to the place he had to leave at 7 a.m that morning so we're packing his bike at two in the morning at the um christian campsite we were staying at the christian cabins and it's, I'm guessing it was that whole thing if he took took the front wheel out, took the rear wheel out, put a blanket in it and just sealed Chucked it up. Chucked everything else in. Yeah. Chucked some clothes yep. in there. Off he went. Yeah. Well, I, this this is the whole thing. Like, uh, So Jade is one of the track riders uh, with the Victorian Institute of Sport, I think. I think he's with VIS. Mm-hmm. Um, we, yeah, maybe. Yeah. We, we, we will need to fact check that. Um, but they actually helped develop the box, I believe or were involved or are involved uh, with uh, EnviroBox. But the whole premise of it is that it's a simple solution. It's easy. It's it's inexpensive. No, but one of the things that I I think is a really good thing to, which we'll come back to later, but it's about finding the needs of the the rider and Mm -hmm. finding equipment to suit. Yeah. So that's why when, you know, David, when you were saying like, oh, I think I want to get one of these hard cases, it's like in my head, I just go, I, I understand why you're traveling. Is that going to be the best option for you? But then I don't know the full circumstance. And this is where it's always hard, you know, judging uh, like what the right approach is. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'd save a lot of money by going in an Enviro box, that's for sure. And I've never really heard any complaints about them. Well, as a, as a bit of an idea, um, so the Dutch Federation transport all of their bikes in cardboard boxes. No have, way. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a double corrugated cardboard box uh, with like a sort of a sponge foam inlay that they just rest. Uh, and they'll have four frames in one box. You're kidding me. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm not. The Dutch. The, the the biggest on the track right now. They're using covered boxes and they're packing frames together. Yeah. Holy shit! Okay. <laughs> ah, see, this is ah, this is good. See, this is why I like it. Uh, it's a good point of context is understanding the needs, and it's going to be a bit of a theme today because I think this is a point that gets missed. So, a cardboard box is cheap and easy to replace if damaged. Mm-hmm. cardboard box is typically stood the right way up so yeah. you don't need to worry about oh, so many right. throwing it yes. on the side yes and, I didn't think of that and the good part is cardboard boxes have handles they do so a baggage handler is going to lift it by the handles because it's got those little holes in the side yeah yeah and then they oh. just put over, over the top of it they just put like those cam straps 25 millimeter fabric strap, just pull it tight and tie it off. Yeah, and you can always just attach wheels to it when you need, if you need. Well, wheels are all packed in other cartons, so equipment gets separated and put into different cartons for that purpose. Yeah, 
Yeah, now you really hope that all of your shit like arrives at the at the same time because if you only have frames to compete or only wheels, it's not going to be a great day. <laughs> I'd love. To I watch that. have heard stories of a federation uh, receiving everything except for their helmets for a race meet because they put all their helmets into one one carton and all of their athletes had all of their equipment except for helmets oh wow and as a result that federation has now changed the way that it packs its helmets to ensure that riders don't pack all the helmets in one box it's that the helmet goes with the rider along with their shoes and all their other equipment isn't that just the shit you do just carry your helmet and your shoes and like one skin suit with you so in case you lose everything else you can still get a lender bike and still race like that's one thing we were taught from when we were like young kids traveling to njts is you keep the essentials on you at all times you'll find that i think majority of athletes will have their training helmet and their shoes and everything with them but Mm. not their race helmets as such Mm. And if you consider it that a lot of federations and a lot of um, teams will have spare bikes as well. So if, if, for example, frames didn't turn up, they'd get their other frame box and pull frames from it. Yeah. Shit. That's okay, a great story. Such, yeah, that's such a, it's such a logistical nightmare by the sounds of it. Well, yeah. equipment. I mean, to give you guys context, like, if you want to talk tech that makes travel and transport bad, a great example would be the, the British's uh, Hope Lotus bikes. So I was waiting in the airport for the Dutch to arrive because I was on a two-hour earlier flight, and I was watching Great Britain come out of the airport. And then after we arrived at the storage uh, facility in Jakarta to, to unload our equipment, um, we asked one of the staff, and supposedly GB had 91 boxes. Oh, 91. <laughs> Almost a hundred boxes. Yeah. How many athletes did they have? Was uh, I think it was about thirty or thirty-five. All right, so pretty big contingent. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's three boxes per athlete. Yeah. It sounds Man, sounds weirdly reasonable. It's like considering, like, if they no doubt they're taking road bikes and track bikes with them. Like it well, sounds. That's it vaguely re- it sounds reasonable when you think of it that way like it's not like 91 boxes by itself sounds like a shitload which it is but sort out of the realms of possibility well when you consider it that for example the hope lotus they can only put one frame in a box it's so yeah, large yep and you can't yeah. put any other parts in that box probably so all right. of a sudden you've got this this problem where you know from a logistics side is like what makes sense so then when you know, if we use the the Dutch, because I know the numbers there, we had a total of 30 cartons and that was for 12 riders and that had 12 race frames, four spare frames, uh, all the road bikes, so a road bike each, um, massage tables, tools, compressors, a whole lot. I mean, for the British team, we can probably fit an, an healthy amount of gears between these chain stays. Like they a could, lot. but I would yeah. guess that the risk of damaging it is what stops them doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you think of it from a funding side, um, I know in conversations with um, Oz Cycling that part of their 
um, needs as a squad is to try and reduce the weight for transit because it has a higher cost implication on traveling to events. So if you were using a, let's just choose a real bad example here. Let's say it was uh, shoes. Let's say Mm -hmm. the average shoe of a rider was 300 grams and they know that they're going to be taking 35 sets of shoes, but they can get a shoe that's 35 grams lighter. They can cut a lot of weight out. You know, they're going to cut their, their weight there by 10% at least. And so from a freight and logistics side, it could save them money. But then if you apply that over all your equipment, chain rings, sprockets, chains, frames, handlebars, stems, saddles, everything along with that, imagine how much money you would save going to an event. Just imagine having a team, a national team, with the lightest gears, not for actual aero racing purposes. Yeah, just just for logistic. <laughs> well, yeah, and th- and this is probably where getting into the tech of what we saw at Jakarta is probably interesting. And I think um, one of the one of the parts that I notice is that you'll start to see people will have mismatched equipment. So, for example, um, like the Australians are running the Campagnolo discs on a lot of the bikes, and then you'll see at different times they might have like a Karima five spoke or a four spoke or mm-hmm. they might even have a different brand of wheel. A lot of their equipment choices come down to the needs of the team. So it might be stiffness to weight ratio. Wow. So the chasing of incremental gains needs to be looked at from a perspective of performance as well as what, what is best for the application. Oh my God. That's, a totally new perspective that I haven't imagined before. Yeah, I think if you look at the American team, like their sprint team sponsored by Look and they run all Look equipment, but then their Enduro squad runs those felts. I imagine that's a similar application. Maybe those felts aren't as stiff as what is required for a team sprint rider or a kilo rider, so they put them on the Look equipment because they know that the Look and Corama stuff has been built for one of the most successful track nations on earth. So I imagine that's a similar approach that we've seen on like a wider scale, I guess. You, well, you've actually just identified uh, probably the best example that exists in the track cycling scene. So Look and Karima is the same company. Yeah. So when their frames were developed and designed, they would have built their aero and the, the tech around the Karima wheels as the most optimized pairing to get the best performance. Uh-huh. So more than likely what you're sort of suggesting here, David, is that if if a squad was looking at trying to get the best performance is how do we do that? And, you know, they may have looked at the, the look frame and said, that's what we need for our fit requirements and sizing. Yeah. And it just made sense to get the wheels to go with it. Yeah, I think um, Alex Dowsett goes into this quite neatly as well. Like when he went for his second hour record attempt, unsuccessful but he still got close is that it was more a self-funded venture than a team funded one so he had the opportunity to test a lot of different equipment and he went through three or four different brands of disc wheels with that factor hanzo he was running and he found out that the heads were the fastest with that frame and he went through a bunch of different helmets and he found out that actually his team sponsored helmet was the best he could use with his body like his body composition and his setup so I think, yeah, a lot of people do fall into the trap of just, yeah, like buying stuff that's not within their needs. 
and just going for something because it's a popular item rather than looking at what they actually need for their setup and what's going to benefit them the most. Like I'm not going to buy a ceramic coated chain for outdoor racing, which I do most of the time. I'd just rather go a basic Izumi chain for uh-huh. outdoor racing because it's what I need. Like, yeah, it may not be the most efficient thing, but there's a lot more things out there that I have to worry about than my damn chain efficiency when I'm racing on a 400 meter bitumen outdoor track with no banking. So I think it's always a good idea to take a step back and see what you actually need for your environment. Yeah. yeah I think you've identified like a pretty key thing is like, what, what do we need versus what do we want? All right. I want a new Argon Sprint bike, but I don't need it. You You and everyone else. Yeah, and they they do look really good. And apparently they perform really well as well. Yeah, they go all right. I think, look, yeah, I think the Argon's actually a really interesting platform. Um, Both the look and the Argon are really heavy in the front because of the the way that they've optimized their front end, you know, that little fairing that they have. Mm. But... Like, you know, and, and this is this is a another one of those things. Like, you probably notice um, Matthew Richardson's a good example. So if you look at his bike, he has, like, a custom uh, stem on his bike. Uh, yes. I think it's a Bastion 3D printed stem, but don't quote me there because I'm not 100% sure. Whereas you'll see that Tom Cornish and I think on Lee Hoffman's bike, uh, both of them have the integrated handlebar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And more than likely, the needs of the rider uh, is so different that they can't achieve the result they need using those parts. So one one of those things that, um, and no stranger to, to the show, is uh, Glenn from Velobike. You've spoken about him before. We were discussing yep. this need, you know, it's, it's optimization um, for the needs of the rider, but it's, it's what are you willing to compromise on? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you giving up in order to do this? So yeah, teams teams will choose their equipment on that. And I think like for you, David, like I know that um, you came from having a Dolan or you still have the Dolan. Yeah, I know I got sold the Dolan, a 55 or 54 Dolan. What have you got now? Um, Avanti Pista Evo 2 and like a 58 or 59, whatever their large yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, sized up, uh, boy. Yeah, I and did the right thing this time. <laughs> oh. And look, we've all done we've all done the wrong size bike at least once. Yeah, because uh, I was yeah, I was like mid COVID. I'm like, I want a new race frame. So I was racing my brother's old beat up T4, and I'm like, I want my own bike. <laughs> then I bought it too small, and I'm like, ah, oh, it works. And then I went when I purchased the long boy from your store, and you're like, David, you need a bigger bike, mate. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. You probably bought it at the right time too, because during the middle of the pandemic. There was no track cycling on, so you probably got yours at actually a reasonable price, unlike the inflated yeah. stuff we're seeing now. Yeah, no, I got I was very happy and I ended up selling it um to one of our junior riders in Cairns and I of course lost some money because it's a used item, but you're just the prices of other frames at the time and just trying to get them right now is just ridiculous. So I got lucky with that um that sale, fortunately. Yeah, I did. But, I mean, it's the same time. issue we see in the fixed community, and Paul, you'll probably uh, appreciate this. the The prices of of um, secondhand bikes, or even what was accessible ten years ago, it, it's it's out of control now. Like you can't do an entry level build anymore. 
It is a little bit out of control. I do agree with you. I think it comes down to, um, of course, inflation and the part the 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 price of labor materials. If you take like a company like I don't know, like Phil or Paul or Velocity, the price of metal is higher than it's ever been before. The price of labor is also high for good reasons. Uh. But on the other side, you have brands uh, that will sell you complete bikes for what could look like like a reasonable amount of money, but they're just the most terrible, atrocious shit you've ever ridden. And that's a problem. Um, I strongly believe that in, like when people send me a message telling me, Hey, I'm I'm really get want to get into fixed gear, not even track bikes, you know, like just fixed gear. Uh, what should I buy? Do you think this is great? Do you think this is great? And I'm like, honestly, you should maybe okay, yeah, maybe get a, a new frame, but not necessarily, but probably get like secondhand stuff. Yeah. That's probably the best way to go right now. Yeah, no, well, that's I, one um, of the, the challenges that I mean, even track cycling has is that it's so hard to know what the quality of parts were. And I, I think that the we look at the fixed gear community. When I got into it, you could go get a steel track bike for 100 bucks, 200 bucks. Yeah, yeah. no one wanted them. But now we have this, uh, this, this challenge because all the old steel track bikes got built up, ridden, killed, and they're somewhere in the trash now. So we're finding the same in track cycling is that a lot of that older equipment that came through and was functional is no longer usable. It's damaged. And we're in, in a mix of either buying real cheap, low quality stuff or having to spend big on something fairly quality. Yeah. It's, um, mm. it, it, and this is kind of the part that I think makes it hard for people to try track. Yeah, no, totally. You know, there's been a trend sim semi recently on uh, the look uh, 396. Yep. Oh, yeah, 396 yeah. and 496. Like, you can see a lot of fixed gear influencers getting these in the streets, but they already have dead and they're just finishing them on Paris, Parisian pavement, you know? And. Well, yeah, it's sad to see them go. I, I'd like at least to keep one or two, you know, uh, in a museum or on a wall or something, just for like history's sake, you know. But at the same time, like I think that having having access to that old equipment, I mean, that's what got me into writing fix. A, a friend of mine sent me a link and was like, "Buy this," and I was like, "Oh, it's it, you know, it was a bad converted frame," so I was like, "I I didn't do it." And then another friend of mine's like, hey, I got this old steel track bike if you're interested. And I rode that for a good year and a half before I decided I wanted something better. But that frame would never have been ridden on a track again. And yeah. it wasn't until I crashed it and bent the top tube and, you know, just cooked it uh, that it was no longer rideable. But that's what inspired me to to get the next thing and how I ended up buying a, a, a low um track pursuit it was i'd fallen in love with cycling yeah so i feel like you know everyone has to aspire and dream so the, like the influences when they get these other you know older like 396s and stuff it, it 
it gives other people inspiration of the thing that they could have, the the bike they want. Oh, totally. I mean, I've been inspired as well. Uh, um, not by Instagram because it was just a very, very beginning at the time. But I've got inspired by the people I was riding with and they were riding in my time what I thought was the wildest shit. And I was like, yes, I want this. I want more. I started with a very, very old Bianchi, but not necessarily the best ones. And some of my mates were riding like San Ranchos and Makinos. And I was like, yeah, this is my next step. I want to go full NGS now. Um, and then i wrote ngs drops for a year and my wrist didn't thank me yeah that's like a phase in every developing boy's life is the ngs i honestly i honestly thank ngs kieran like kieran racing for bringing me back into track cycling because when i was in year 12 i kind of stopped for a, a while and i was only racing because my brother was racing and was quite good at it and then when he kind of started to waver a bit he had got a job and stuff. I would just, I saw some photos from when we were in Japan and we visited one of the velodromes and I'm like, Oh, like, I wonder what the, like, look, got into the bikes again and I needed new cranks. So I started looking at all the 75s and I saw like the super 75s. I'm like, Oh, this shit's mad. Like started getting back into it again. And then, yeah, that's when I ended up buying the Dolan because I knew I needed a new frame and I'm like, Oh, well, like this could go nicely. So yeah, I think, like the basics of track racing, like old steel frames kind of got me back into it because I wanted to buy an NJS frame then. And even my fixie build, which gets ridden once every six months, that was a KHS, which was thrown in the trash by the local cycling club because it was no longer being used. So I did a bit of dumpster diving, pulled it out, painted it and brought it back to life. Like I think it's so important that we continue to reuse equipment even when we're not in equipment shortages like we're in now. Like if it's still a good product, just keep using it. Yeah, reduce I waste. totally agree with that. I think that's actually a really good segue too to, to probably come back to um, talk about some of the equipment from Jakarta because I think what you've highlighted is that whole need, necessity versus requirement. There's a lot yeah. of us as, as you know masters, like I'm a master's writer, so I'm 36, and it's like I've got a BT Edge and Karima wheels and all the gear and no idea. And <laughs> it's, it's the truth. I don't train very hard. David will uh, be the first to admit that I uh, put very little effort in. Hey, you put effort into other people's training and you assist them. That's how you. That's how you do your training. Yeah, I mean, if you, yeah, okay. faster. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, I'll take that. I'll. That's that so is wholesome. A, is this a Disney story or something? Yeah. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, looking at uh, like Olympic level equipment, and there is there's a couple of sides there that I think are starting to come into light. Looking back at um, Tokyo with the Bastion handlebar debacle, where they had a, <laughs> a breakage on the pursuit yep. bikes. I remember that. So. I'm not sure if you're aware, there was actually um, an inquiry done by Oz Cycling to find out what happened. Um, so they wanted yes. to... Have you read the report at all? Um, I think I so I talked about it into a few pre-shows, but uh, so the handlebar broke and then they started like an investigation and then 
uh, Bastion said themselves that they were investigating on their side as well. And I think I never got the end of the story. So so the short short version is that they found that there was some oxidization occurring in the product, um, but that wasn't the key point for failure. It, it was that there were unknowns. So how much force the rider was putting into the equipment, um, the fact that the ISO testing isn't really uh, <coughs> probably enough um, for safe yeah. uh, race environments. And so from there, it's like we have to then consider like what's needed for Olympic level usage versus what would the average rider need. So like David, you, you and I, we're not going to stress the equipment to the edge of its life as much as we'd love to say yeah. that we can. Like we ain't, we ain't it. No, nah, we don't have enough skin in the game. But I think this is kind of the the part that's always fascinating. You know, you're looking at all the different squads and federations and their choices of equipment. Oz Cycling has taken a really interesting approach that they began um, developing their own testing protocols for equipment so that they could say, hey, if we test this equipment, like we know it will do its job and it will keep the rider safe. And I think that that's actually something that hasn't really been touched on previously by any, anyone else. So if, if you look at, um, you know, we'll come back to the look frames, for example. Like uh-huh. I've never seen them fail but they must no. go through extreme testing. Yeah, look, looks are, I mean, they're usually really high up there in terms of track cycling. And yeah, no, as far as I can remember, I think I've never seen one fail. Um, I've seen some Mavic wheels failing, but that's, that's, Ma- that's Mavic. That's different. <laughs> But it's it's like anything. It's it's there's always a need to develop um, yeah. the, the product. And if you look at the Look R ninety six or L ninety six, you know yep. both developed for London Rio, which is what the L obviously stands for in the R, uh, and then the T twenty. Each each of those platforms probably performs in an aero environment very very similar to the its predecessor. But what probably changes a lot is the stiffness to weight ratio. You know, we were touching on that before. And mm. then it's like if you were riding a frame that was 12 years old and it had gone through material fatigue, would your rider be safe? Especially with carbon fiber, right? The, I mean, it's not the fiber itself. It's the, the resin between all the fibers. But, yeah, I mean, at some point you have to let it go. Well, that's like um those the T fives that they developed for was it the Rio games that the GB team was using? Yep. And they aren't they all broken now? Like aren't they just oh. all rooted after a couple of years? Funny you say that. I think I saw one in Jakarta. Oh shit! The last <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, it was actually one of the only bikes that got my attention. Yeah, because they look schmick. Because I know uh, Road CC did an article years ago, twenty seventeen, saying that a lot of the Rio model frames were already fucked from racing. So they were reverting back to the Institute of Sport frames that the UK pumps out. And, I mean, that's the the Team GB bikes, um, well, the T4 or T5, sorry. Like, that ended up in, a, I think, a bit of a lawsuit or a bit of a, a, a dick-swinging contest between the two to try and figure out who was in breach of contract. 
And I think Savello ended up arguing the point that they were, you know, contracted to develop a frame and produce a frame that would win Olympic gold. And it did exactly what was requested of it. Yeah. And it's, they had no designated service life. They just said, we want to win this many medals at, um, uh, <coughs> I think it was Rio, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Rio. Yeah, yeah, was Rio. That. yeah. And, and they fulfilled their obligations. All the frames survived up until after Rio. And they were like, why are you unhappy? We did what you asked. Did the job. Yeah. And I, I guess like also I, don't think T5s were ever available to the public to purchase. I mean, they might have been through some fucking roundabout meet Uncle Bill at the corner at 4.30 in the morning and you may get to see one, but I don't think they were ever available to purchase easily or you could never look at them online to purchase. So Savella would have just been like, yeah, we built you a frame for a need, for a purpose. Um, you didn't say anything about the Nations Cups in the next year. Bad luck, go find another frame. And I think that that's what happened in the end, yeah. Yeah. And it does well, make sense. Like, nothing lasts, especially at that high level with those high stresses and stuff, so. Do you think and, it's this story with Cervello that made them go so overboard with Hope afterward? Lotus, sorry? No, Hope, yeah, I mean, both of them, yeah. It was Hope, yeah. Th- Maybe. Yeah, possibly. I think that also gb have been very they're always ones to push the envelope a bit when it comes to development of products they always want the best for their riders so they're willing to try funky new things like even the original lotus Superbikes. i think the 110 that boardman rode like they've always been ones to try and um show that just push the envelope as far as they can go yeah. But the the new Lotus bike isn't anything new. I mean, there's if you do enough uh, searching online, you can find that there's um, patent applications from 3T dating back to like 2012 or 2013 or something, some ages ago, of a bike with a similar design. Um, I've probably got my years wrong there, but the design's not new or radical. It's just that no one had applied it in, you know, like in the modern sort of showcase. Yeah. But... It's kind of fascinating. Commercial availability is a big challenge. It's actually one of the most frustrating parts of my job as a retailer is trying to explain to people that we can't get the equipment they want. But, you know, there's UCI rulings in place which uh, are there to protect uh, people so that they can have the same equipment, the same playing field. But, you know, David, you'll understand this. Like there's there's brands out there that sell their bikes for 200,000, you know, euro yeah. or something. WXR and... Fess and yep, yeah, lots of Cinderella F. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's just I mean, that's a tall, that's a totally different cans of beans, but yeah, but it's still the Pinarello is not even the most expensive, like that's the crazy part. Yeah, I mean, which one is the most expensive? The, the Vortex, the, yeah, the WXR Vortex, yeah, yeah. With all the, if you Ooh. build it up with the bars, the wheels, the seat clamp, the seat. <laughs> but I think all of that is proprietary. You need these. Yeah, most of it is. Yeah. But it it's kind of, it takes away from the spirit of competition. So the whole whole argument around uh, availability was always there so that, that nations that didn't have the money to develop, you know, with the UK, they've got, um, is it Silverstone uh, is driving it all. 
you know, they've got one of the the highest funded cycling bodies in the world. You know, Shell is their sponsor. I mean, we're talking about absolute giant corporations funding their team to get results. And then mm. you've got riders coming out of smaller European nations who, if you put on that same equipment, would absolutely destroy them. Mm. So this, this, I mean, it's a tough, it's a tough position to be in for a lot of uh, riders. But yeah, they what we see, you know, in the the UCI world sort of level is a lot of equipment that's not not easily accessible or it's not cost efficient per se. Yeah. That's why I kind of miss the days of the... I mean, I still see a lot of BT edges and ultras floating around at Track Nations Cup. these are really good bikes. Yeah, like they're willing, willing, they're available to purchase. Um, Like I even find that with the New Zealand squad, now that Avanti is no longer... Do they still manufacture or are they kaput? Are they completely gone? They're done. They're done? So what's the go yeah, with their next Olympic Because I see Ali um, Wallace and she was on, it looked like a debadged BT when she races. Yep. Yeah, and I I think going back to Jakarta, she's my rider of the, of the Nations Cup, Ali. She did such a good job there. Like, she looked untouchable for that entire Omnium. Oh, and, uh, yeah, you're spot on. She was probably the most dominant force uh, in the in the Omnium. You're, you're 100%. Yeah. She just... Yeah. She monstered them. And, like, she came to Cairns. I almost got the chance to race her because she came to Cairns just before the Olympics because her partner, I believe her partner rode for the New Zealand triathlon team. And so she came to the track, she hired a bike, but then it started raining, so we couldn't race. Oh, no. And I was like, fuck. And then she what joined um, AG Insurance, the quick step female team, and is winning shit left, right, and center in New Zealand and overseas. And I was like, damn, that would have just been sick just to say I've raced like a, a top-level rider at my home track because usually you always have to travel away to first people like that. It's yeah, but you know, coming to the equipment stuff, and this is probably a um, thing. I think the equipment makes a lot less impact on the rider's performance than the rider themselves. But you uh, know, yeah, there's always sure. going to be that competitive edge that people are chasing, and I feel like that's what makes it hard to to enter into doing track, especially coming from the fixed side. Because you turn up on like, you know, for example, like an old steel bike and you might feel out of place. Or if you've got, um, you know, even just a modern alloy track frame, people will look at you and go, oh, you're just a fixie rider. Like what, you know, eat. Yeah. Why, yeah. why are you here? No, I think track is one of the scariest re- re- things to get into, sorry, when it comes to that stuff. Because it's like the fastest speeds and the highest watts put out. So the equipment is so flashy that it is a I mean, bit yeah, scary. but also... I, I'm saying that as a skinny white boy, you are standing next to monsters. Oh, mate. Track yeah. cycling make people really, really muscular and big. And you're just out there 
skinny as hell coming out of nowhere with your aluminum track bike and you're like yeah can i have a go yeah, yeah. no i remember it's, it's it's intimidating it's exactly that um david you might be able to correct me here but was it your brother who went up against glatzer at that um, was nationals me. was it you uh, at oceanas yeah i went up against glatzer at o- oceanas last year that was Remember you said to me, oh, get him relegated. He pulled out the sprinter's lane. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah no, that was possi- quite possibly the scariest thing I've ever done was racing against Glades. He's such a nice bloke, but just knowing that that is one of the fastest men on earth when it comes to track cycling, and I'm about to go up against that, there's nothing I can do but just experience it and see what it feels like to try and hold on to a human motorbike as he rides away from me. It's, oh my god, yeah, you I must mean, have been terrified. Oh, it was fun. It was scary. And he did like the thing is about Glades is he takes it all so seriously. Like he stood, he stared me down. I stared back. Oh yeah. And he watched me the entire race. He did not turn his head once to look forward until it was his time to go. Like even though I was a full, not just under two seconds slower in a flying two hundred, he still respected me like I could have beaten him at any time, and I didn't expect yeah. that. But then when you think about it, these are paid professionals. This is their job, and he's lost to guys who qualified sixteenth before. Like it happened at Commonwealth Games, I think, at Anamia's Velodrome. He lost to a sixteenth man qualifier in the sprint rounds, and he was pretty ruined after that emotionally so i guess he just he paid me so much respect by treating me like an actual threat in that race it's the old story of the tortoise and the hare right yeah you you, the minute you lose your focus you lose a race yeah doesn't matter how quick you are but you know these are the everyone idolizes the big boys but like coming into it from from my side of like riding on the street first and then moving into track, like turning up on my, my tra- street bike, I put, you know, my different, some different wheels in and turned up to do my accreditation at our, our velodrome. And the girl running the session is, uh, Hayley Jones. So David, you know, Hayley probably pretty well. Yeah. Uh, not well, but I know I've spoken to her before. Yeah. Well, Hayley's mum, Louise rode Commonwealth games, pretty sure gold medalist. Um, She's one of the top-level commissaires. Uh, she did the Tokyo Road Race. So, like, Haley comes from a fairly good family of uh, cycling, you know, quite a history there. And I turned up and she's like, oh, look at these hipsters. Like, first thing she says to me, I've never <laughs> met her in my life. It's just like, great. So That's I'm the guy with the colourful bike. <laughs> That's a slur <laughs> when it comes to big ski riders. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt. And she's like, why are you even like, do we need to do the accreditation? You've got better bikes than most of the people that ride here. And it's just like, well, yeah, because I built a really nice bike and I still, you know, but that, that side of it's intimidating. And I mean, people shouldn't get as fixated on equipment, but that's why we're always trying to get people to come to track on what they've got. I mean, I'd love to see more fixed riders coming and experiencing it because it's the same person. We want to go fast we want to do it, you know, without brakes because, you know, that's the fun way to do it. But yeah. riding a Kieran or being in a bunch race, it's the same as weaving in and out of the traffic. 
it's the same adrenaline rush. I really like that. What would you say to someone that is riding a fixed gear, maybe on a daily basis, but is a little bit afraid to try actual track cycling? Chances are you're going to be better than most of the track riders because you have better handling skills. On the track. Yeah, do it. Like, I love racing people who ride fixed because they are the most predictable but also the most like aggressive races. I love it. It's it's amazing. That's that's a clip I'm gonna save for later and make people listen to. <laughs> well, it, it's true though. Like any any person that I've ever met that comes from riding fixed, when you put them on a velodrome, they take time. They're like, oh, this is a bit weird. But once they get confident, they know how to read the wheel in front of them because they understand how the bike moves. Yeah. I mean, how many how many times have you ridden through the traffic with a bunch of friends and you're weaving in and out of traffic, but you have complete trust in the line that they're taking, knowing that it'll get you out the other side? Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, that's track cycling. There you go. Paul's going to become our next big track rider for the pod. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I really want to get back into into a I little bit more of track cycling like actual I think it shows. yeah it shows with riders on the other end like if you have like in australia you have a lot of regional riders who are absolute weapons like they are just usually i find the riders who race outdoor on multiple different tracks in a year they may not be the most powerful but they're the most crafty and they have that ability to win races against much stronger guys just because they know what to do and when to sit wheels and when to go for gaps. And I think it like it showed when we raced on an outdoor track in Bundaberg, you had the fastest rider in the state against um, one of the fastest, the fastest regional rider in the state. And on his home track, the regional rider was so strong. I think Matt knows who I'm talking about here. Well, you can, you can name drop, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, so Duncan, who is now one of our close friends grew up in Bundaberg, raced in Bundaberg on an outdoor track against a rider called Byron Davies. You might guys might've heard that name before. He is a very fast track rider, super quick on an indoor, but as soon as it came to an outdoor setting, he wasn't as potent or as scary as what he was in an indoor setting. So mm-hmm. even someone like myself, I think I finished fourth in the Kieran I was only just behind these guys like Byron Davies. He does like a nine, seven flying 200, whereas I'm struggling to break 11 seconds, but on an outdoor track, it doesn't matter. It's, you know, and it's funny. uh, I don't know if you know, David Duncan's actually living with us at the moment while he's trying to find accommodation. So that's, is he he around? Is he? No, no. We uh, as soon as he, I tested positive, he was out of here. He did. So, uh, just he, he's gone. <laughs> what a good mate. <laughs> My girlfriend did. Uh, as as I tested positive. She was out the door. Oh uh, yeah, I suppose he's got nationals coming up, doesn't he? Well, yeah, but it, it's it's interesting how you highlight that, and I, I believe that this is where the crossover between fixed and track is real important. An outdoor track is very much like riding on the street. You know, you have to learn how to use the lines, how to navigate around things. It's and, and you get that intuition from riding on the street. 
I mean, again, Paul, you know, this is where it's probably good to get your perspective, but do you have that same thing that when you're on a track bike, you look two or three seconds further ahead to know where you're going to ride? Actually, I do. Yeah. But on a road bike, do you do that? Well, I don't ride road bikes, but I ride cargo bikes for my daily job. And no, I don't because I'm in total relaxed mode. Like I have a rear shifter and two brakes and this is going to be easy for me. So no, I don't. So that idea is the same thing that applies in track racing. You know, when you're riding on an outdoor track, you're thinking three, four, five seconds ahead of where you are now to know when you're going to move. And if you can apply that same logic, you could be a very, very capable track racer. And you don't have to be fast. You have to be smart. It's all up there in the gray. Oh, years of experience, but... isn't it? <laughs> it's just second nature. Like, like I think every track rider in Australia should race the Tasmanian carnivals at one stage. Like it is such an experience, but on those, like those 500 meter tracks, like those long ass tracks with their shitty road surface and their weird uphill sections, which they shouldn't have an uphill section and headwind sections. You do have to be looking so far ahead on when to jump. Cause like yeah, indoor track, it's, I find it's much more, I guess it's easier to know what's going to happen because there's a much more controlled environment. But on those outdoor tracks, you have to plan ahead severely, like on the 500 meter ones. You can't just go with a lap out. That's not going to work. It's 500 meters. That's a long effort. So I find myself, I always look forward three, four seconds when I'm racing away on an outdoor track. Cairns is a bit different because I've done thousands, tens of thousands of laps there, but I do wish there was more of a fixed gear community in Cairns because, I mean, I've tried to ride fixed gear in Cairns before and there's just no one else to do it with. Like they just, everybody in Cairns is either a road rider or a triathlete and I've never seen another person on a fixed gear bike out for a ride on like a morning or riding to work or riding home from work. Mm. It's a bit, bit boring in Cairns sometimes, but I do wish more fixed gear riders on the street got into track cycling as well because it can be a bit snobby, the sport, and because all the equipment's so expensive. But as Matt said, they're usually the handiest riders when it comes to a bunch race. They know what to do. And I always trust track riders more in a road race than anybody else. I always try to sit behind track riders because I know they're predictable. They know how to corner. They know how to navigate bunches. So it's just a skill that, seems to carry over quite well yeah it's really real yeah talking about gears matt you're the owner of one of the rare bike shops that do fixed gear but also track bikes at the same time i honestly don't know another bike shop that do that uh, you, you might be the only one there um but what would you recommend for a beginner for gear choice yeah uh it, that's a hard question like it, if you're talking like frames or, or gear inches or what what give me some uh something well, to start with let, let's just say i'm um i'm an 
I've been riding fixed gear for a few years now. I have my casual aluminum track bike and wide riser bars on it. But next weekend, I'd like to try the tryout session at my local velodrome. What do I need? What do I don't need? Um, and what would you recommend? All right, I really like this question because this is something that I get asked way too much and I still struggle to get people who understand my reasoning. I usually say to most people, turn up with what you have. If you've got a set of drop handlebars, put them on. You know, if, if you've got clip-in pedals, great, take them. If not, and you've got toe clips, take them. Like, just turn up with what you've got. More than anything, though, brand new tires. Always turn up to your track with brand new track tires. Nothing's worse than uh, turning up with bad tires and slipping on a banking, especially if it's timber. If it's on an outdoor, it really doesn't matter. Ignore my comment. But uh, ride what you got. It's it's the same mantra we use in the fixed world, right? You yeah. know, people go, oh, I'm going to go do 100Ks. What do I need? Your bike. Just ride it. It's fine. Like, but if you want to get more specific, you know, and you want to go down the rabbit hole, like, if you don't have drop bars, well, you're going to need something. But keep it with keep it cheap. I mean, I think there's a, a hyper fixation on having all of the perfect equipment from the start. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. if we treat it the exact same way we do the fixed community, like when when I was getting into it, I, I bought a bike that wasn't quite right for me. It didn't have like what I wanted on it. So I changed stuff. The same will happen in track. You will develop. You know, David's done the same. He's realized his frame was too small relative to his needs and he sized up. But if I had told him that when he was starting, I bet you he wouldn't have bought it. Holy yeah. So I think this is the, um, this is kind of the catch 22. A lot of velodromes want you to have very clean equipment. So as long as your bike is clean, your chain's clean, and it looks like it doesn't ride on the street, and your tires are new, they'll think it's only for track. Yeah. Yeah, there's not much to it. I, I, I say keep it simple. Also, you may find that some tracks have a higher bike service too, which is super handy. Like Cairns does it. We just have a fleet of Avanti Pistas. And you can hire them for like, it's under five bucks for a session. Like it's dirt cheap. Like if you have absolutely nothing or you're not quite confident yet, you don't want to take your pride and joy to a track. But does Animeers have a higher bike system or is it a bit rubbish? Um, they've got a couple of higher bikes. I think it's about $10 per session. Yeah, the right. bikes themselves aren't in the best condition always. Yeah. And it's it's because people tinker with them, you know, there's been yes. people who go, oh, I want a different handlebar. So they take a bar off a different bike and then someone doesn't yep. put the handlebars back on properly. And mm, I think yeah. Cairns has a rule. You don't fuck with the higher bikes. <laughs> you <laughs> ride what is on them. You change your pedals and your seat height and that's it. You leave the rest alone. But I mean, to, to the average person, they're not going to notice a difference in equipment yeah, their first exactly. or second time. Yeah. You know, it's akin, it's seriously, it's the same experiences. Like if a, a road cyclist wants to give fixed a shot and the first time they jump on a bike and go for a pedal, even with a brake, it's like you've never ridden a bike before. It's so different. 
No, I'm I, I'm I'm totally with you on that. The fact that write what what you have and uh, I've um I did turn up. No, I didn't. Someone did, and that's the story. I, that's the story I heard. But yeah, someone did turn up at, as a at a velodrome tryout session, and all they were asking was for if you were riding your track bike from your place to the velodrome. They were just asking you to get a different set of wheels with brand new tires for actually riding on the on the indoor velodrome, which I understand. Yeah, but, it's yeah, it, but. That's that's a courtesy thing. Like uh, coming to like Dugas tires, for example, like their latex tires are so thin that if you had a small piece of glass in your tire and it was to jam into the timber on the track because that's softer than the rubber or you know whatever, yeah, <coughs> that could cause a crash because someone could puncture. So it's kind of like a lot of these little nuances, little things that people don't think about. Yeah. And I find tire choice makes such a difference on an indoor velodrome too. Like my very first time riding on a banked indoor velodrome is I got a brand new set of Veloflex records because they were just what people used and they were excellent. And then you see the guys who might have worn road tires that they've used on their outdoors all their life and they're just going down like nonstop just on the bank back decelerates straight down as soon as it gets below a certain speed. So yeah, tire choice is something I always really stress when people are thinking of going away, going to an indoor velodrome. Like it is not just for like better speeds. If you get a purpose indoor track tire, it's much faster, but just safety. No one wants to fall off even at low speeds. Yeah. Well, Paul, how, how for um, the Olympic games, do you know if they're resurfacing the velodrome you have? Or is it a new event, like stadium? What What's happening there? Because I'm fascinated to know what's going on there. So I know they're building a lot of new infrastructures, but for the velodrome itself, um, I do believe that they're not doing anything to it. No, no, no. Uh, because the, it's the one... So it's a little bit outside of Paris, and it's the one that um, the French team use for training. And it's... It has been resurfaced, but not such a long time ago. So I think if they change stuff to the said velodrome, it's probably be it's probably gonna be like uh public access and stuff like that, but not for the riding part itself. I don't think they're gonna change anything. So they'll probably just resurface it and sand it right before the event and probably the- yeah. Yeah, because I know that you guys are hosting uh, World Masters, I think, in 24 and 25 as well for the track oh, cycle. Wow. I didn't know that. Is yeah, that- so we've got a couple of guys in Australia who are um, traveling over for it to race. Is that like Graves and Fletcher and stuff? Yep. A yeah, a few more. of those guys are looking at going over. Yeah, right. That'd be a pretty fucking potent team. Well, this is it. And... Again, this is what I love. Like the track community is pretty good in the sense that when it travels, people just help each other. It's, I mean, coming back to to a lot of the the regional carnivals and like, you know, again, Paul, it's hard to to really describe the size of Australia and go, hey, it's you know, yeah. But you'll have riders <laughs> who are a thousand or fifteen hundred kilometers away who travel into town 
and people will be like, oh, yep, you guys can crash in the living room or, you know, some of them will have a camper van and they'll drive and park it in someone's yard and stay there. But there's this side in the community that's all about just helping one another. And that's it's the same in the fixed community. Like when I was living in Amsterdam, I got there and I just met some people through the, the fixed gear community. And it was just like, hey, I'm, you know, here from Australia. And people are like, oh, hey, you know, do you want to go for a ride? It's that side of it's fantastic. So, I mean, if you do end up getting into a bit more track and riding, you'll find that all of a sudden you'll have invitations and couches all over the world if you ever want to travel. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that's that's probably one of the best part of it is just being able to travel, have the simplest bike with you and being able to meet new people, make new new friends, having experiences all over the world. I, that's, that's probably one of my favorite part. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think the most fun I've ever had at a regional carnival was probably Bundaberg last year, Matt. Like, although I didn't get to do anything touristy, I didn't really get to chill out much, but just like end of night, going back to the Allen's household, having a feed, having a yarn, then going back to sleep underneath the house. And Is that this was just, the place you you were sleeping in that you had like bikes all around you? Oh yeah, it's heaven. It's so nice underneath <laughs> there. Like you say, sleeping under the house. Like fuck, it's probably one of the nicest rooms in the entire place. Wow. And it's and it's so cool inside there. Like it's actually nice and oh, cool. Fuck, like it's great. considering the heat heat in the area. I, the only downside was you getting up at two o'clock in the morning to get in the car to drive back to Cairns. You oh, know, I think shit, that was yes. the only negative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that was um i'm if i go back to bundy i'm just gonna there's that new airline that popped up bonza they do direct flights to rockhampton and bundy i think so and the flights aren't stupidly priced either so i might just fly to brisbane and drive four hours instead rather than doing a two-day trip <laughs> to get there well, i mean back. worst case you've always got a bed here if you get stuck so exactly yeah you know, or a couch or a floor. Just anything works. I don't want to be sitting in the back of a van for two more days again. That was actual torture. Ah. Uh, I'm going to say, especially when someone takes a wrong turn and goes 45 minutes west of where yeah, they're meant to be. No, that does not help at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't me driving, Paul. It was somebody else. I kept checking Google Maps and I'm like, we had been driving. When we took off from Gladstone, it's like a town just north of where we were racing from. It is a two-hour drive from Gladstone to Bundaberg. I Google mapped it before we left. I was sitting in the very back of the van. Like, sweet, hour 54 to go. We'll get there at like 10.30. Racing starts at 2 o'clock. Have a bit of a break. Have some food. Go to racing. We'd been driving for an hour, and I checked the Google Maps, and it was still saying an hour and 45 minutes. And I'm like, the fuck's happening? We drove another 30 minutes and I Googled it. It still said an hour, 40 minutes. And I'm like, what is happening? So basically our driver just kept heading south instead of heading like southeast. Oh, no. Yeah, so we got there. I got to the Allen's house. Matt was there. I went inside, had a chat, had to get changed, get straight to the track. There was no downtime that day. Yeah, because you guys literally unloaded and then they drove straight to the track, didn't they? Pretty much, yeah. We dropped off our stuff yeah. at the track, 
dropped off, dropped me off at the Allens, and then I went straight back in. <laughs> Shit. That was probably one of the most. It was such a fun day, like that Bundaberg track. I I love it. It's this is the, you know this is the funny thing about track is like in Australia at least people will travel so far to do this, but I don't feel like there's many places in the world you'd do this outside of America. No, out of curiosity though, like how much is a flight with your bike from Cairns to Brisbane, for example? Um. Depends, like just a one way or a return. Or well, return, I guess. Return. So it depends on the season, really. Like I was supposed to be at States this year, but flights were return six hundred dollars Australian. What? Yeah. Usually it's a lot cheaper than that. Like usually we can get away with like three fifty with bikes, but yeah, they were charging six hundred bucks return when we were looking Holy at going fuck. down. So I just I just called it quits. I said, I'm not going this year. Plus, I just come back from Tassie and I spent 700 bucks on flights for that. But at least Tasmania is like a lot of 700 to Tassie is good. Yeah, 700 to Tassie was excellent. Then that was the only thing we had to pay for. Um, but yeah, to Brisbane, I'm like, eh, it's not, it's not worth it. Like, I mean, I love racing Animeers. I love seeing everyone down there, but... At that point in my life, I was like, I don't have the money for that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's as I thought it was going to be similar to what we have in Europe, but it's way more expensive. Yeah, no, Australia is, um, it's, it's a lovely, it's a decent place to live, but it's an absolute bitch to get around. Yeah. Oh, it has its moments. That's for sure. Yeah. Like we had a small trailer fire about six hours into our drive. What? <laughs> we had, did, oh, I did never we heard not, about this. No shit. All right, the story time. So we were driving. We left Cairns on a Wednesday, Wednesday at midnight. So going over to Thursday. So I guess like Thursday, very early morning, twelve. Th- sorry, one a.m. in the morning. We left Cairns. We got to Mackay, which is about a six-hour drive, around six, seven-hour drive. We went to McDonald's got a feed, got a coffee, and we were walking back across the road and we're about to hop back in the van and we started seeing smoke pouring out the back of the trailer. And we're like, what the fuck? So we opened it up and something, a fuse had shorted and just started, some cables just set themselves on fire and started glowing. It melted the battery casing and everything in the car smelled like burning plastic. So yeah, we almost, if we were in that McDonald's for five more minutes we may have lost some equipment honestly holy shit i mean a steel bike would have been the only thing to survive yeah pretty much and my bike was at the very back the trailer fire was at the front so mine (laughs) i I might yeah i might have been okay but there would have been nothing else left like we had heaps of race wheels in there we had equipment some people had their helmets and shoes in there like we would have lost a lot of stuff if we didn't catch it early that's the that's the kind of moments you need a a heat treated sticker. <laughs> it's definitely. Uh, I'm just thinking like, drive. Yeah, the concept of driving even like twenty hours and then dealing with that six hours into your drive. No. Nah. Yeah, and then um. <laughs> now nah, so I'm out. it. We then we had to replace a fuse when we got to Gladstone, so we were up late 
trying to find out which fuse was actually busted. Like that's the thing. Like it was a Mercedes van had to take off the thing and check each circuit, each fuse to see which one had actually gone bang. Yeah, it was um an interesting, interesting trip. And here was me complaining that I had to sit on like planes, you know, and transit for like twelve hours to get to Indonesia. You know, and you guys are yeah, driving. At least you're going like at least you're going across the world, not <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not not driving through nothingness for 12 hours of your day like seriously middle of queensland paul there is fuck all like when i mean fuck all there's nothing it's just a shit road through some bushes with an occasional town every four hours like it is bad. There, there's a big rock in the middle you're forgetting there is a big yeah, rock there is a big rock honestly um, what else? as a european it it's just it's really, really, really hard for me to picture this. Like, it is nothing in the middle for four hours? How? Yeah, like, it's it's pretty... Once you get down towards Rockhampton, so you're getting closer, to like, halfway across the state, they have that long-ass straight of road. I forgot what the name is. The something Plains, I think. And it's, like, a really high car crash zone because people just get... I don't know, they get dazed by the lines because it's just a dead straight road just hundreds of k's just straight and we have another one oh in western in western australia or south australia um the nullarbor i think it is and that has how straight is the nullarbor like that is a like a thousand k's of straight road oh yeah there's like one, one section where the nearest town is like 350 kilometers or something it's the What's longest the straight road in the world in australia 110 on roads like that Oof. kilometers per hour not miles per hour yeah you take yeah probably you could probably fucking fang it no one's going to catch yeah. you but um yeah here we go so it's 147 kilometers and it's straight it is dead straight my god and the roads aren't good either because they're in the middle of nowhere well that's yeah, that you know what? Even as stupid as it sounds, I kind of want to try it out. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> like literally, it's it is nothing. It's just trees and bushes and a bit of shit road. Like, I'm, a lot of people complain in Australia that Australia does have very tough speeding laws for a reason. And then people say, but in the auto, like in Germany, you can go on the autobahn and it's unrestricted, but our roads are shit. Like they're not safe to be doing those kinds of speeds on. That's the difference. And the lanes aren't, you know, twice as wide, and you don't have drivers no. that are as skilled or cars that are as good. You know, there's exactly the truth about the autobahn is that yes, it has unrestricted speed limit, but it's on very small sections, and it's there's always like um. Uh, uh, how am I going to say that? Uh, it's not rail work, it's road work. Yeah, there's always road work on there. So it's, you know, it's never really, it's it's unrestricted, but not really. Well, I think that's going to be it for this very Aussie episode. Sorry that we got so distracted from equipment and just talked about everything else, but 
it's been totally fine and um, i'm really glad we talked about the the very thin line between fixed gear cycling and track cycling uh it it i i love it i i think that more fixed riders need to just put aside this idea that they're the best out there and just get on a track because they'd probably be even better on a track i love it and a lot of people are gonna probably get a are probably gonna get stoked with that uh this is gonna be great <laughs> well, just... well i can tell you right now a lot of track riders will not get on a uh on a track bike on the street yeah on the other way yeah that sounds a little bit different yeah yeah uh, definitely not if you're just like a pure track racer you're soft i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah but like I mean, you, you'll you'll appreciate it, right? Like, I ride fifty three sixteen brakeless. Like, that's my ninety inch. Oh my god! Wow. Well, that's, you that's must, just what I. You must live on like a bowling alley of a city. It must be flat as crazy. Brisbane is not flat. It is extremely yeah, it's not hilly. Flat at all. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> Brisbane's a very hilly city. So it's, we have a joke. Uh, a mate and I always talk about it. The flatter the city, the easier the gearing. Every time we've gone to a city that's really hilly, everyone's on big gears on their track bikes. You might be right. You might be right. It's just, you know, people love the pain. Yeah. <laughs> so all, all I'm saying is, you know, uh, the fixed gear community could definitely benefit from from getting into track. Like there's a lot of amazing riders and very talented riders who came from racing fixed you know in the especially in the criterium series that was hosted you know with, with red hook and nl crit and uh, rad race and um dijon crit i think it was was in uh, france yeah. is that right yeah 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 a lot of those were street riders and quite a lot of those people ended up on pro teams yeah it's kind of the first door of entry and it was all bike handling skills you need some balls to do fixed gear criterium at a high level. It's yeah, it's that's like, fair. <laughs> when I see them like taking corners, it's tight. It, there's a lot of people stick like glued to each other on very tight corners, lean, leaning against each other, and yeah, I'm like, wow, yeah, that's that's another level already. But that's the same as track. You know, bunch races, yeah. clearing races, rubbing shoulders. Yeah. I'm excited just saying. thinking about it. I'm I'm stoked. <laughs> I'm probably gonna go for a ride today. I was gonna say, I hope we um start seeing some more people at Velodromes in the um Discord chat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd Holy. be great. Apart from I feel like such a outsider sometimes I like post my track. <laughs> racing bike and then Elliot you know Elliot he's got um he's part he's only relatively new but he's got he's a tall ass dude man so he's got a crazy setup he's like a 200 mil long boy on and he's um kind of new into track cycling and he's kind he kind of pops up occasionally and asks me about what equipment I'm running but I'd love to see more people in the chat getting onto the taking their bikes to the velodrome and I just hope people are accepting of them Absolutely. If you want to join the Discord, the link is in the show notes, along with various uh, links to other useful stuff for different slow spin society related things. And yeah, do you guys have anything to say before we 
we end this lovely show um i think i'm i've said enough <laughs> yeah I, i've definitely spoken too much as well but uh that's no, been it's been good like i i'm i enjoy the dynamic of having you know the fixed and track side being able to talk both it i'd love to see this conversation open up more yeah i agree with you matt thank you so much for coming on the show thank you people we'll see you when we'll see you have a good one bye bye see ya Thank you.